You're listening to the Reinvest Podcast, where each Tuesday we will show you how to reclaim, reconnect, and refocus your life by bringing you the top real estate professionals in the industry. We'll pull back the curtain so you can implement these tools and tactics to build generational wealth. Your host, Garrett Gatton and Seth Simonillo. Hey guys, welcome to episode 69 of the Reinvest Podcast. At the time that this is dropping, it is tax season. Yes. <laughs> Everyone's Which, kind of bracing for, for that tax bill. I know I am also bracing for the tax bill. I feel like I didn't plan well enough in 2023, and therefore I'm paying more money than I probably could have. So that's not as fun as I would have hoped it would have been. Well, and it's it's a good segue into saying that it's maybe it's a little too late to make a lot of changes on this last tax year, but it's never too late to strategize and find the right person moving forward. Um, by the time this is dropped, our previous guest uh, is a tax consultant. So find somebody who knows um, the ins and outs specifically of real estate taxes. Um, not all CPAs are created equal in terms of the attention and the confidence they have to help you maximize the benefits that are given to you for owning real estate. So um, we've got a great guest today. You yeah. want an intro for him? Yeah, absolutely. We have Jared Sturm with us from Cincinnati, Ohio. Jared, how are you doing? I'm doing good. And uh, the the tax drop caught me off guard just because we're recording a little bit ahead of time. But I'm like, oh, oh, no. Did I <laughs> uh, but no, yeah. I, uh, and, and I'm excited to talk about real estate because on the tax front, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to be a full time real estate investor for 16 plus years. And so haven't had the burden of taxes uh, very much at all. So uh, we can always dig into that, but uh, well, that will be a, a relevant portion of today's conversation, and we can go a lot of ways. So, Jared, uh, you know that's kind of the thing with you is you've been doing this long enough that we could probably do a dozen episodes on what you've learned or different areas of real estate that you're uh, you're working or finding success in. Um, but before we kind of get into the main topic for today, who is Jared Sturm? You know, you're a Bearcat. The flying pig, you're a Buckeye, hopefully. Confirm that for us here <laughs> shortly. Um, how'd you get started in real estate? What company do you have? Give us a little context here. Yeah, thank you. And and my story goes back, you know, I said it just a second ago, I've been doing it for 16 years, but my story in real estate starts prior to that. And uh, in high school, I was a terrible academic student. So like the the academics just wasn't a fit for me but we did still have wood shop in my high school and I excelled there. And so like working with my hands and working in trades was always something that interested me during the high school years. And then my senior year, my high school had a program where we could go out and work a full-time job. And, mm. and I signed up for that program and I became a maintenance tech for our local landlord here in Cincinnati, Ohio. No, I didn't know much. So I was the guy who did like eviction set outs and I would maybe hang blinds and paint paint turnovers and things like that. But what I was, I was naturally inclined with the trades and I just always said yes if someone asked me to do something and slowly built that skill set up. So myself and my brother got a job being this guy's maintenance tech. And then that evolved into friends and family asking, can you fix this? Can you fix that? Which then evolved into, can you redo my bathroom? Can you redo my kitchen? So the, by the time I was exiting high school, um, we were doing kitchen remodels, bathroom remodels, um, and really using our skill set in the trades in that regard. But uh, 
that prompted us in 2008 to start buying some of those foreclosures. So Mm -hmm. while we were running a construction company, we were buying really distressed single family houses and nights and weekends going in, fixing those up. Then we decided to rent those out. And for a couple of years, we did both our construction company and our rentals until the rentals started kicking off enough cash flow where we could focus on that. So So why did, why did, uh, just to, while you're kind of going through that, that journey there, what, because there are a lot of contractors, a lot of construction guys that were operating, you know, doing, had their businesses in 2008. What gave you the nudge to actually become the owner of real estate? There wasn't anything profound. So like, I don't have a, uh, a this aha moment or this. <laughs> I was on a mountain and there was, was <laughs> but, but I can tell you like no one in my family is entrepreneurial. I, as I look back on this and, and have had this question in the past, like what prompted you? I think it was that I was really that bad in school, like academics wise, that I just never got on the traditional path of like, cor- call it corporate America. That just yeah. was never for me. So, but I was smart. I just needed to find an alternative. And so I just started looking into like, well, what's my other avenues? And it was like, well, I enjoy working with my hands. Um, how can I use that? Right. And I was very good at making like high end custom furniture and wood shop. But I was really? like, I don't want to compete with Ikea. Like, I, this is not interest to me. So what else can I do? And the trades kind of fell in. And um, but I think I was aware enough to say, like, is that the full scope of what I want for my business? And mm. um, it wasn't because I didn't want to just swing a hammer every day for 40 years. And so I was looking for right. those alternatives. So you bought, um, started buying some single family houses, rehabbing them. Were you flipping some of them and holding some of them or just... At yeah, the time, maybe just holding. Yeah, at the time we were just holding, and so I, I know traditional path is usually like maybe do some wholesaling, get enough money, do some flips, and then potentially you can get to rentals. We didn't really take that path, um, but to give you some context, like this is two thousand eight, nine, ten, eleven, right? Houses were much much cheaper back then, and so we might go do a high end kitchen in a really affluent area of Cincinnati and make forty thousand dollars in profit, and then turn around. And we would buy a house for $40,000 at mm. cash and mm-hmm. do all the renovations ourselves. This was, again, that time, That time, no lenders were lending, especially right. to a, you know, an 18-year-old that didn't have a W. <laughs> and so our first eight, eight houses had to be all cash, both the acquisition and the renovation. So that oh, took wow. us two years to do that. But we were very disciplined in our approach to say, we're going to not spend the money that's getting kicked off of this construction company and we're going to actually redeploy it into these rentals. So when we you were say prepared. we, who, what do you mean? Was that uh, myself and my brother? So uh, okay. it's still my business partner today. And so, you know, we, we uh, started the construction company. He was a maintenance tech as well. We've had very similar paths and now run our company together. Um, but yeah, we, we made the decision that that money was going to go back into buying rentals. And even when those rentals were kicking off cash flow, they were going into buying more rentals. So it was that delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why I had that in my mind at 18, 19, but it was just maybe the way we were raised and just the discipline to get it done. But fast forward, you know, we, we were buying single family houses, renovating them that grew into small multis like quads and 10 units. And we were building up our portfolio. The first eight years of our career, we were not raising any money from outside investors. We just did everything internally funded. Um, Once we got to those eight houses, though, we did find a little local bank that gave us a blanket cash out refinance. And I'll never forget that day because it was so profound because, um, you know, at the time, I think I was 20. 
um, and we had we had eight houses completely free and clear, and they gave us a sixty percent LTV blanket loan that we had forced a lot of appreciation into these assets mm-hmm. and getting that check at closing was like, it worked, you know, like <laughs> it, it worked. And, and the wise thing we did though, wow. is we didn't go out and buy, you know, super fancy cars or anything. We went out and bought 10 more houses. Yeah. Wow. And so, and then it's, it has snowballed from there and, and where we sit today is at 1300 units here in, in Cincinnati. And, most of those smaller, or I should say all of the smaller ones that we built up over the first eight years, we have since sold off to focus exclusively on large apartment communities. So that was a, know, a long-winded way of giving you my background, but hopefully that helps. No, yeah. that yeah, that is really good stuff. And we were talking just uh, before kind of going live onto this episode, and I think this is the appropriate time to discuss this. Uh, there are a lot of misnomers about real estate, and maybe it's because uh, anytime something gets attention you have a lot of voices that start to kind of speak on the topic. And as a listener or as an aspiring investor, you have to kind of sift out the good advice from the bad advice uh, and know what you're listening to. So maybe speak to um, the the thesis that you know real estate is a, a get-rich-quick kind of model to build wealth. Yeah. I guess I'll preface it and say, my path is not someone else's path and that person's path is not the next person's path. And so like my story is definitely not one of get rich quick. And I don't think it is for most real estate investors. It Mm -hmm. can be. And I think that's enticing. Um, But that's certainly not how it felt for me for a very long time. And so I think the, the word of caution that I would give to any aspiring real estate investor who is chasing the get rich quick scheme is, the majority of the time, it takes quite literally the opposite, right? Like it, it takes being poor for a long time <laughs> right. to have any traction because you're you're not taking those paychecks, you're not taking those distributions, and um, you know I can certainly share lots of my own examples of how the first five years we took zero distributions out of our company. I was living off of at the time my girlfriend's, but now my wife's teaching salary. She hung in there, huh? Wow. Hung in there and she's a teacher now. So I bet she was uh, yeah, she's grateful now. <laughs> a, a wise investor. She was investing in me. But um no, but like yeah, and I remember, you know, going to the thrift store and buy uh, there was a bin that sold nine cent t shirts and they sold them as regs, right? Because <laughs> they were supposed to be used as regs, but I was wearing those to for work. But uh, wow. racked those, from those, rags uh, to riches. Oh, that's what we're going to title this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but I would just caution anyone who thinks it's going to be easy because if, yeah. if you go in with that mindset or that it's going to be quick, most likely you're going to get wiped out yeah. when uh. it isn't. So. And, and that advice is not just for aspiring investors. It's to it's to investors that need to stay the course because uh, you want to look to the left, you want to look to the right and kind of get a pulse on like, am I doing well based on what you see going on around you? And um, you can't do that. You got to keep your eyes down. You got to be able to learn. I'm not saying don't learn from other people, but there, I find myself in that trap and I need that advice that you just gave is work the system long enough and it will pay off. Mm-hmm. And for yeah. you specifically, it took eight to 10 years to really start to snowball. And I think there that's like a common theme of successful people that I've been yeah. listening to is they're like, man, I was building this for like 10 years before yeah. things really took off. 
And um, yeah, it's kind of when you hit that hockey stick, when you hit that elbow and start shooting up, that's when you get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And but that's only part of the story. Yeah. So success. Think, go ahead, Jerry. I'm sorry. I was going to say in, in, in those eight to 10 years, you know, we were aware that that hockey stick was coming. So we were building the systems and processes and operations to accommodate them so that it wasn't mm-hmm. caught off guard. But it's certainly not as sexy and shiny during that right. time period, because it's like. Yeah. I'm thinking about systems and processes and, Oh, wait a minute. I got to go unplug this toilet. That's clogged. because, right, like, yeah. And so yeah. it doesn't get as much attention. Right. But, uh, it, it, that's the reality of it. At least for me, that's how I knew how to do yeah. it. Um, and there's things now I look back on that I wouldn't do the same, but at the time it was necessary for me to gain the wisdom and the experience to then put yep. me in the position that I'm in today. And how that all translates, and I still think about this quite a bit, is like the advice that you're giving is like you have to know your own core competency. Like, mm-hmm. what are you good at? And whether that's me today at 1,300 units or me buying the first one, like what I was good at is buying, renovating, forcing appreciation, and then stripping the equity. So our business model on those early houses is no different than what we're doing today on you know 100 plus unit apartment communities. We know what we're good at. We stay in our lane. We just kind of repeat that and have for a long time, just slightly bigger each time. There's a, I don't know if it was um, John Maxwell or somebody in the leadership community kind of talked about like priming the pump, you know, and you're, you've got that old style well pump and you got to pump the handle, pump the handle. It's bringing it from 50 feet underneath the ground. And so many times you keep pumping and pumping and pumping and you get tired and if you stop pumping, the water might be a foot and a half away from coming out of the spigot. And relating that to what we're talking about, there's that shiny object syndrome. Well, maybe I'm going to go try this strategy because the one I'm doing right now isn't getting the results that I want. And you guys really stayed with the same model and you got good enough at it that you were able to start to do it at scale. And then the last, you know, probably third or last half of your investment career up to this point, it's had disproportionate dividends, you know, from that effort. So I think that's that's the true of a lot of people if you stick with it long enough. One of the things you guys have been excellent at um, is operational efficiency. Um, and when you have a portfolio of 1,300 units, that doesn't happen by accident. And it doesn't happen by shooting from the hip and flying by the seat of your pants. So I'm hopeful that we can kind of unpack your guys' systems, the strategies that you're implementing into your apartment communities uh, for you know your investors, for yourself, that somebody could apply to their context. How do you uncover inefficiencies that would affect bottom line revenue? So I don't know if you want to start by just kind of giving us an overview of F- SNS Capital and what does that mean that you guys are excellent kind of in the operational side of things? Yeah. Um, thank you. I, I, I pride myself on how good we are at our operations and how that impacts the bottom line. And I, I'll just say to kick it off is one of my favorite comments that I make to our investors or other or other investors who are aspiring to build their own businesses is like financial returns are supported by the on-site operations of these real estate assets. But what a, what a lot of people miss is the on-site operations are supported by the people who actually work there. And I think I have a, a, an advantage of really 
understanding that statement because of how we've scaled our business. I have actually sat in each of those roles at those mm-hmm. properties, you know, right. been the guy who's cleaning. I've been the maintenance tech, the leasing agent, the property manager, the regional manager, all of that. But fast forward today, you know, we have 50 employees. Uh, we're vertically integrated, meaning we handle our own property management, but we also handle our own construction in-house. So mm. the same business that we were building 15, 16 years ago, uh, renovating, we have carried that forward and, you know, have our own internal teams that are renovating apartments or uh, not just maintaining them, but turning them over and doing renovations. And what we're exceptional at is maximizing the efficiency. So the NOI is as strong as possible, which forces those values up. And then doing that with usually a component of property management as well as construction. So when we're finding ways to add value, usually they fall into those two buckets, but there's lots of different levers that can be pulled. Did I answer your original question? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I figured it's going to be a combination of those things um, in terms of the property management side of stuff. uh, And would say again, what were the two buckets that they fall into? You said construction management and property management. Yeah. Just renovations or property management. Right. So there are vertically integrated companies that handle their own property manage, like they they own Mm -hmm. the asset and they handle the property management. But as soon as it comes time to renovate the apartment, they call the subcontractor. Right. right? And so we're doing all of those in-house. Let's talk with uh, about property management real quick, kind of pick that bucket and, and maybe extract out. Uh, what are some of the levers that somebody could pull within that kind of column of real estate that would affect the profitability of their their properties? So maybe it's uh, having property manager software that's going to make them aware of lease renewals that need to you know happen. Um, you know, it's having data on hand, you know, you mentioned an onsite property manager. So I think you hit on a few key components there of um, good software and data, and then how that then translates back to the people who are actually executing the actions to make these things happen. So that to me, that means KPIs, right? So we track KPIs or key performance indicators for specific roles in our property management company so we can hold them accountable and set targets. But, um, you know, we just went through the, the change of the calendar year that has budgeting, like we have to do, you know, extensive budgeting for the next year. And so we're always looking for ways to maximize NOI or net income or whatever mm-hmm. the target is we're looking at. And so to your point, or to answer your question more specifically, a lot of times it's every single account on the, on the income statement, right? It's not just one profound one. It's like, well, how can we maximize pet rent, right? Or how can we decrease utilities slightly by installing this different toilet or this LED lighting or this different faucet, showerhead, whatever, and all of these components then add up. The, I would say if you look back to 2008, 9, 10, 11, there was very low hanging fruit where you could say this rent is 800, it could be right. 1100 and it was so straightforward. Yeah, Days are gone. And so you have to not only hit every account, a lot of times you have to read between the lines to find those opportunities to to maximize that NOI. The biggest one, and one thing when we were doing budgeting this year that we were just so aware of and trying to convey to our property managers is uh, the the largest account that has the biggest trickle-down effect is vacancy, right? So like Mm. vacancy then trickles into all these other accounts um, that 
either positively or negatively impact your yeah utilities that on units that you're holding that utility expense for yeah and so so the advice i would give is know where those big levers are and then structure one to two kpis to hold team accountable to it so let's use vacancy as an example most property management softwares and most investors will track vacancy or occupancy one or the other right that's a common thing but one thing we do is we break vacancy down into the components of each department that handles it. So I'll explain that as obviously vacancy is from the time one resident moves out to the time the next resident moves in. But you can then break that down to say that from the time the one resident moves out to the time the construction starts, mm. the project mm-hmm. manager is responsible for that con- component. And then you could say from the time the construction starts to the time the construction finishes, right? Those are your tradesmen. Those are our turnover guys. They're responsible for getting it from that point to that point. And then the construction is finished. And then by the time the next resident moves in, that's leasing's responsibility. That's our sales team. So we set targets for each of those components. And I can tell you, like, we average right now, even with 1,300 units, we average 20 days from that first to the last. So move out and move in. And that's with a heavy renovation in the middle. Our leasing team in 2023 averaged three and a half days from when the construction was finished to when the tenant moved in. And that all plays into because... Which, can I pause you right there? I like Most people probably would not appreciate three and a half days for leasing is wild. Because, I mean, you could have pictures sit in someone's inbox for... A, you know what I mean? Like just even getting the information after it's been renovated, uploaded, and that information out there, and then doing showings to a lease signing. That's fast. Three and a half days. Well, they don't do that. That's That would... That would that process would fail. They're actually the success of the leasing team hinges on the project managers because what happens is our lease requires a 30-day notice from the pre- previous resident. So the, the resident gives notice, I'm moving out on this future date. Right then the project manager takes that and schedules the construction. Our construction takes currently three and a half days to completely turn a unit on average. And so we know when that construction is going to finish. So that tells the leasing team, this is the date that you can now pre-lease this to. And because everything is in-house, we have control of all of those dates. And the wow. team has enough confidence in each other that the, the leasing agent can say to the prospective resident, even though this isn't ready now, three months from now, it's going to be ready. We Here's a video tour of, of what it will look like when it's finished. And then we have enough positive Google reviews and things like that to give the perspective confidence. So I think it was last year, 68% of our leases were signed on the units before that um, unit ever even turned. Right. So it's all about being proactive and squeezing that down. And so this is a, I'm drilling into one specific example, but we're using KPIs to direct the people who are actually then trickling up to the financial returns and that's what makes us good at operations. So it's very easy to say like, yeah, I'm great at operating. It's like, well, what are your KPIs? What are your targets? Mm. And it, you can't inspect what you don't expect. So you guys have broken it down to know what to even expect of people. Um, and then you can then monitor in that system. Like most people be like, oh, vacancy. Well, if you're looking at vacancy as one category, you're wrong. <laughs> There's, you know, so much happening more, you know, within that. So that's really good. Um, so, one thing you hit on there that I think is relevant is the asset class. 
ties into the efficiency because part of the reason that you guys are able to pre-lease 68% of these um, last year is because you have a lot of uniformity in your in your properties. It's not like you have a single family house portfolio of 50 different houses. You're able to have that data of like units and this many type of floor plans and this apartment complex that creates kind of a, a, an economies of scale, so to speak. Um, so talk about when you guys are on the purchasing side of things and you know that's in the back of your mind. How can we efficiently operate a property uh, and you have your system in place? How does What are the construction types of the apartment complexes that you guys look at, the age of the units, how many units that you're looking at? To, to feel like you can achieve the level at which you operate? Um, so I would say our ideal purchase would be a 200-unit apartment community that has 101 bedrooms, all the same floor, hand, floor plan, 102 bedrooms, all the same floor plan, built in 1990, and the rents in Cincinnati, Ohio are about $1,500. That would be like perfect, right? The more cookie cutter it is, the more systematized and processed and better it falls into our process not always possible. So like, you know, our oldest asset was built in 1967. Our newest one, I think is like 2003. So we're somewhere in there, but again, it goes back to our core competency of adding value through renovation. So we're not buying brand new stuff. We can't like that doesn't fall into our bucket of being able to add value. But a lot of times where we can add the most value is sometimes in those older assets where call it pre-1978, some other buyers will defer or shy away from it because the the construction component is there's more skeletons in the closet. They don't know what to anticipate, but we know how to speak that language. We can do our due diligence and uncover those things. So I would agree with what you're saying. The more cookie cutter it can be, the more attracted we are to it. But the, the systems and processes we do now that made us so good at pre-leasing, we learned those when we were doing single family houses, right? Mm. So we were doing the same thing that the key is most, what I found most important, and this was proven out through COVID, the key is your reputation online. So Google Mm. reviews for us were extremely important. So if someone's going to sign a lease and put a deposit down, so often they're leaning on reviews, just like you would if you bought something on Amazon, right? Right. Um, and so what we did is we we realized that during COVID. And so we went out to our property management team, like our employees, and we said, every Google review that's five stars that you get and your name is in it, you get an hour of PTO. And so then we sent basically an army wow. of our team. Wow. And we had maintenance techs making their own business cards with QR codes and handing them out. And, you know, like it was no just... No way. So... To your point, like you can do this same thing, even if you don't have a 200 unit cookie cutter, you know, 1990s building, if you had single family houses, the key is you got to put up the upfront work to have the reputation. And then the first time you lease that single family house, you got to take a video of it. You got to get good pictures. You got to stay, stay virtually stage it. So that way, when it comes time to pre-lease it before the resident has moved out, you can gain the trust of someone to sign a lease mm-hmm. and put a deposit down on something they've never seen. That is such a good idea. Yeah. We're the Google review <laughs> things kind of blow my mind a little bit. But. So, but okay, on that, let's just use that as an example because it's a good one. You, you figured out the Google reviews was going to help establish kind of that preliminary credibility, which yeah. was then going to expedite the leasing process. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
that didn't ensure you knew how to motivate the people down, you know, in your organization to then go get those reviews. So part of the the KPI thing is not just knowing which lever, but then how to pull the lever. So how'd you guys come up with the idea to for the PTO incentivization, you know, incentivization? Because mm. obviously it worked. Yeah, yeah, it did work. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I think it's kind of it wasn't anything profound, right? It was like the squeaky wheel gets oil, right? So right. Ask, <laughs> ask, and then it's like, I'm thinking of it from the perspective, again, I've been in their shoes. Like yeah. it's awkward to ask, right? Like if you're a leasing agent and you're like, hey, I, you know, I hope you enjoy your new apartment. And by the way, can you leave me a, a positive Google review? If there's no reason to do that or no incentive to do that, why would they do it? And I, I'm willing to put myself in their shoes and say like, well, what would make me do it, right? Mm-hmm. And we have we've had leasing agents that have, you know, 80 hours of PTO because they they go on two week vacation paid because they are asking, but at their hourly rate, the, the cost of that marketing is totally worth it. Right. Um, because we're picking it up on vacancy, which is the largest account that then trickles down into net NOI, which then we're forcing massive value into these. Then we strip the equity by doing a debt restructure or refinance. And then we go buy another apartment community. So um, that's one of many ways to like kind of see how the all the little levers then impact yeah. the which would be NOI, which you're always targeting growth. So on. Is, so aside from um, so we talk, kind of talked about the property management side of of your guys's company and how you're able to be more efficient. Speak to the construction side. So other than controlling the timeline, because you you know it's all your employees kind of under the same roof. What have been some of those things by controlling your own construction? How has it made you guys more efficient? Yeah, I I can share this, but I should first should give credit to my brother. So I, I currently have two partners. So there's myself and two more. And, and our technical titles, I'm CEO, my brother's COO, and my partner is CFO. I think a better way to describe that for your listeners is I push the company forward. My brother cleans up the mess that that creates with <laughs> And then uh, Coleman, our third partner, CFO, he keeps track of all of it. And so like, that's how we break down our responsibilities roughly, right? But at a, at a 50 person company, it's still, there's lines are blurred and, and we help each other out in any way we can. But the credit to the efficiency and operations, both in property management and construction management should go to my brother, but I'm more than happy to share that story. Um, and I would say we are better at construction management than we are at property management, but I think we're the best property managers in Cincinnati. So hopefully that show, wow. tells you how good I think we are at construction management. Um, and it all goes to my brother and his ability to process, find efficiencies. And again, we did this for a lot of years. And so um, one thing we don't do is we don't outsource stuff. So a lot of companies will outsource the carpet or the flooring. You know, they bring in a separate team to do the flooring or they bring in different painters or their cleaners. Like, no, it's all in-house because what we've learned over the years is those transition points is where you lose efficiency and get right. choppy. You know, the, the carpet guy didn't show up or he's sick. And then that throws your whole schedule off. If your yeah. schedule is off and your leasing agents then have to talk to a disgruntled resident because we didn't hit the date then they stop trusting that pre-lease date. And then they then they start giving themselves margin or delta between so they don't get yelled at. And so it's like, it, it's all about the efficiencies. And my brother has it down to where 
our project managers go into these apartments that need renovations. They create what we call an MOI or a move out inspection that creates a, that creates several outputs. And this is all happening within an app that he built. So um, it creates a scope of work. It auto translates that to both English and Spanish in case some of those tradesmen's first language might be Spanish. And then it creates an order to our Home Depot rep. And it also creates a um, an accounting report to our account accountants to accelerate depreciation on certain components of the, the asset that we're ripping out. Wow. And then what happens is our tradesmen show up to the apartment and the goal is to allow them to never leave the apartment, not because we're trying to trap them in jail, <laughs> but anyone who's been in the trades knows like it's a massive inefficiency yeah. to drive to Home Depot. Yeah. So they don't like doing it. And so on day one, when when the tradesmen are doing the demo, pallets show up to the front door of all the materials they need. The project manager is inputting that. We negotiate our pricing on those materials that we use. We do the same thing in every single apartment. And then th- there's a scope of work that allows them to know exactly what our expectation is. They finish that in about three and a half days and move on. Our cleaners come in, do a clean and a punch list inspection. We have five full-time cleaners. Um, and and so all of it's in-house. We can control all of those components. And that's what's so important to us. But uh, what I was what I was trying to remember to say, like my brother has it down to such a science that when they, there is a, there is a manual of when they unload the pallets where in each floor plan, they should set like the stack of flooring. So that way they don't have to move it again. Right. And so that is a level of efficiency that a lot of tradesmen don't have, but if you can teach it to them, they really appreciate. Yeah. You know, when we hire new turn teams is what we call them, our, our teams of four that renovate apartments. And we tell them like, we're going to get it done in three and a half days. They're like, there's no way. And it's like, well, if you don't have to move the materials around five times, um, yeah. you actually shaved off five hours, right? Um, no. And- so let me, on that note, um, I had, so I had a pretty lucrative career as a floor layer <laughs> under my father-in-law. Um, I think it was probably to kind of put some brownie points into the piggy bank of uh, Mary and his daughter. But uh, he was he's one of those guys where he thinks through just very logically workflow type stuff. And it was funny because early on, I was the doofus that would unload the box truck with these, you know, big, massive, you know, boxes of flooring. And invariably, I would always set them in the wrong spot. And he would, you know, like chide me, sometimes lovingly, sometimes not, <laughs> about like where, and I'm like, I just get so frustrated. I'm like, Stanley, how, how is there a wrong way to bring a box of flooring in, you know? And then he would hand me a broom and say, sweep out this room. And then I would sweep it out. And then he'd come through and sweep out. Like, I swear he dumped dirt in there and then swept it out (laughs) because I was like, where did that dirt come from? And it just basic stuff you think, you know, that you don't. And then when you're around somebody who's been doing it for a long time, you realize how much waste and effort you're expending that really isn't going anywhere. And then you know, now I think a little differently. So he's much better. But to your point, that's incredible that you guys have gotten that granular yeah. on the construction process and that you've been able to communicate that. And systematized it. Yeah. yeah Respect. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And one of the things I'm really proud of is <clears throat> on those turn teams, we have grown them to where they're now we have multiple turn teams, right? But we have never had any turnover in that. And in, in anyone who's been involved in the trades knows that's very hard to do. Like, right. Um, 
they really appreciate it because it allows them to focus on what their core competency is rather rather than running materials and trying to think through all that stuff. We give them that process. And I'll, and I'll give you one more fun example is like that. My brother is so in tune with this stuff is he's like watching one of the turn teams and he goes to monitor stuff and make sure we're running efficient efficiently. And he's looking at it and on the kitchen counter of this apartment, that's like wrapping up a turnover. He's like, a couple bottles of Gatorade and like a few Red Bulls. And he's like, where do you guys get those from? And they're like, oh, up at, you know, BP or whatever gas station. He's like, you guys drive there to get those? And he's like, like, yeah, we drive there to get those. So then from now on in that, in that material orders from Home Depot, box of Gatorade, box of Red Bull on the top. That's crazy. (laughs) Like stop leaving, right? That's like I would, the cost of the Red Bull and the Gatorade is significantly less than the loss of efficiency. (laughs) Uh, Because these guys are hourly paid and they're certainly not clocking out to drive to the gas station to get Gatorade, right? So if I were one of the turn teams, I would stash like an empty pizza box and like a few other choice items and in hopes that he would then make that a part of the next turn. So. I mean, that's funny. labor is so much more expensive than these little things. Yeah. And certainly those guys are like, sweet, you know, like that's part of like, uh, right. called a perk of the job. Right. Yeah. But, you know, and we're like, yeah, caffeine, take it, take it. Yeah. <laughs> Work harder and faster. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. We're going to jump into our smaller pockets segment here. Right. Can I, for a second, this no. is, uh, this is funny because you were on bigger pockets. Okay. So now this is a redemptive moment for you to tell us a smaller, smaller pockets. pockets. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, smaller pockets. Go ahead and tell us about one of your worst deals and what happened and what did you learn from it so our listeners can uh, avoid the same mistake. Yeah, well, I'm glad you, you put that learn from it part because I really do have, I've gotten this question in different formats over the years. and I have a hard time answering it because of how I view failure. It's not to say that I don't fail. I fail all the time. How we have gotten good is making a lot of mistakes and then cleaning those up. But I always just see it as that, like a a way to improve. And so, um, but early on, the one that stands out to me is we bought a a single family house from a courthouse steps. We weren't allowed to see the inside, right? So we bought it sight unseen. It was very inexpensive, but this house was clearly a tear down after we got it. Like it should have been torn down at the time. We had no idea how to do ground up development. So we were like, we're going to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) Ended up being like six, truly six months of labor that this is at the time when me and my brother were the ones swinging the hammer, you know, running the wires, laying the plumbing, all that stuff. And we, we basically rebuilt that house all the way through. And looking back on it, it was a total waste of money, but such an educational component. Like I learned how to build a house in those six months um, and through YouTube and like failed inspections from the building inspector and just all those things. And, and so when I look back on it now, like I probably made like $2 an hour. (laughs) over a six month period i probably made two dollars an hour maybe did it you 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 went to the place of calculating what you made hourly and by the way most people don't do that when they make a lot of money they're just like this is taking longer what am i making right now yeah so i making two dollars an hour for how hard i worked would if you just focus on that you would say that was a that was a small pockets um yeah but 
I certainly wouldn't be able to do what we do today if we didn't go through those six months because it was such an educational component. And that goes back to how we kind of started this episode is like, sometimes it just is going to be hard and you're not going to make a lot of money. And that's the beginning for, at least for me, mm, yeah. that was necessary to now put me in a position where um, the snowball is rolling and there's a lot more momentum. Yeah. it's awesome. It's good. All right, man. We're going to go into what we call our little nugget. So Jared, uh, we've talked about a lot of things here. So I'm going to ask you to give us something different, something we haven't touched on yet. But what's one practical takeaway or a piece of advice that our listeners can implement into their real estate investing businesses? Could be personal development, could be mindset, could be something really tactical and practical. The door's open. Um, so I think what's applicable to any business, whether it's real estate or it's a one, uh, you know, a two person business or a thousand person business is like as a leader, being extremely clear on what your vision is, is where I, where I have gotten better and I see a lot of mistakes made made. Mm. And so a lot of times as leaders, we assume people will understand what we're trying to create or, mm. or what the expectation is. That is very true. So often it's not like that's not how it works. So you have to be explicitly clear and kind of like 10 times more effort than you think it would take Mm. to convey that to someone. And that's nothing against them. That's all about just leadership. It's your responsibility to take the upfront time. And so something I did, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the book, Vivid Vision. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, a book that I read it and it was really good for me, but it was, um, it tells you to write like a three to five page document that outlines what your company will look like, feel like, act like in the future. Um, And I took it to a whole nother level. Like I went, I wrote a business review magazine. So it looks like someone came into our company three years from now and did a full magazine write up on what SNS looks like, feels like, act like from every department, what our corporate office looks like, how people are greeted, and I put images with it and I print that out. I took a lot of time to put that together and I um, be happy to share it with you guys and put it in the notes because I have electronic versions of it as well. Yeah, yeah um, that'd be awesome. it, it has been invaluable for directing our team because really what it does is it tells them when they're interviewing at SNS, we give one out to every single person. We say, look, oh, if you, yeah. if you accepting an offer, this is what you're saying yes to, because here's where we're going. And then it, more importantly, the team members that are on the team, it empowers them to reverse engineer. So what they do is mm-hmm. they take that magazine and they can say, oh, here's where we're going. So this, I understand now we can work as a unified group in this direction rather than having very skilled people working in opposite, opposite directions. Then they get frustrated, they quit and they go on, go to somewhere else where they have better guidance. Right. So, you know, your question is like, what advice I'd give is just take the time as a leader to really outline that vision and create the clarity for the people who are actually going to execute and bring it to fruition. Let me ask you a kind of, I guess, me more of a personal question. This might require some vulnerability. So uh, on the vision side of things, you know, you're, and you are a very a humble individual. I can just sense that from you very down to earth. And so it's been a, a progress uh, and a journey for you to kind of get to that point of being able to communicate that vision. Um, has it been hard for you in the past or even currently uh, to recognize maybe when something doesn't go the way that you envision or somebody leaves the company, 
is it hard for you to kind of recognize that that's a leadership thing that's that's with you? Um, I would say it happens all the time. It hasn't been hard to recognize because I've always like put that responsibility on my shoulders. And I think that's why I'll take the time to like put in the extra effort to create a little bit more clarity. How can I do this better? How can I convey this better? Um, You know, how can I, but you know, in the, in the, going back to the question of like small pockets, you know, a lot of the mistakes I have made are are surround people, right? Like um, asking them to do the wrong things that don't complement their skill sets or something along those lines. And so I would say if we have a personnel issue that doesn't, that pulls us astray from the vision that I've created, that's my fault, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, mm-hmm. and it could just be like, they're just in the wrong organization or I didn't create enough clarity for them to know what to do. To know what to, yeah. Wow. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, so in closing here, uh, what's been one of the best resources for you uh, in your business development and your personal development? Um, one of the best resources could be something really practical. could be a person, could be anything. I don't know if this is a good answer for your audience, but the first thing that popped in my head as you asked that was, um, my brother. So like having that, I, I, I've gotten the question over the years too, of like, how do you work with a sibling or how do you work with a family member? And like, we, we don't argue, no, like of the three partners, we don't, we've never fought. We don't argue. It's just like state your opinion, whoever makes the best case, we're going to go with that. (laughs) Um, but the re the reason I, uh, mentioned him as a resource is because having partners where I truly believe this, that his success is more important to me than my own and vice versa. And so having someone like that, that's pushing you to that next level, like how can you be better? Can you get this done better? Can we be better? And one of our core values is continuously improving. Right. And so, um, maybe the takeaway, as I'm saying this out loud to your listener is like, if you choose to have a partner in your business, um, they can be seen as a resource to make you better, right? Like if you have a really good partner, they're that valuable to where like they are your best resource to build the best company you have. You can. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Wow. That's good. Um, What would it look like for people to find out more about your company? um, Continue to follow your guys' success. Okay. Um, Yeah. I mean, our website is probably the best place to find me is SNS Capital Group. So that's three letters like Sam, Nancy, Sam, capital group.com. Um, and you, there's a, you know, contact us and those emails come to me. I'd be happy to talk to anyone, but you know, I, I also want to say I'm super appreciative of you guys and anyone who's working on the back end of the production of this podcast, because um, gives me a platform to share my story and I'm super appreciative of all the time and effort that you guys put into that. Well, I do all of the editing (laughs) and I was kidding. (laughs) No. No, he does not. We do have a good team. Um, No, Jared, thank you for coming on today. Um, I was excited to get into this episode. Um, You're you're local, um, but then your story is also very relatable to people who are wanting to start or on the road um, or even have a sizable portfolio that can probably identify with what it takes to get there. Um, So thank you for imparting that wisdom to us today. Yeah. No, thank you again for having me. I I enjoyed sharing the story and hopefully your audience got value from it. Awesome, man. As always, excited that you joined us on another episode of the Reinvest Podcast. If this episode added to your tool belt or left you feeling inspired, go ahead and share with a friend. Stay tuned every Tuesday for new episodes. And if you want to get in touch with us, go to our LinkedIn or Facebook profiles and shoot us a message. 
move farther, reach higher, and grow deeper. See you next time.